Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. Regional Roundup. Money FM 89.3. It is the evening runway. I'm Elliot Danker. Time now to turn our attention to headlines from around the region. Unfortunately, last night we all read or heard about the shooting at Bangkok's Siam Paragon. Uh, we've got some updates on that. Malaysia's government as well, a potential cabinet reshuffling there. And helping me out with these headlines, Nicholas Fang, Managing Director, Black Dot, and Director for Security and Global Affairs at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Nicholas, good afternoon. How are you, sir? Hey, buddy. I'm good. I'm good. How's things with you? Not too bad. Uh, I really wish we didn't have to talk about this, but uh, very shocking. I'm sure you've been to this shopping center, Bangkok Siam Paragon. A 14-year-old suspect arrested. The last I read uh, was uh, something like four casualties. Um, yeah, have we discovered any motive uh, as to this attack so far? Yeah, so very shocking, and you're right. I have been to Siam Paragon. It's uh, obviously a fairly upmarket mall in Bangkok and very popular with overseas tourists. Not that popular with the locals, so I guess it's not too surprising when we hear that there were two fatalities uh, in the shooting. Tourists, two women, one from China and another from Myanmar. Uh, And I think there were five other people uh, injured as well. So in terms of motive, uh, as you mentioned, of course, making the headlines is the age of the shooter. He was just 14 years old. Mm. But from what we understand from the Thai authorities, uh, he was a mental patient. Uh, He was actually receiving treatment and he had not taken reportedly his medication, which might have sparked the potentially have been the cause behind the attack. The Thai police chief said that the teenager was confused. He, he couldn't undergo questioning. And he, he had apparently told the authorities that there was another him telling him who to shoot, mm. another voice in his head. So mm. that, that's definitely very sad if that's the case, uh, both you know in terms of the mental health issue, but was a very tragic outcome for, for the victims, uh, those who were killed and also those who were wounded in the attack. So very, very tragic. Now, the Thai authorities have, of course, said that they are going to step up measures to ensure security and safety, especially for tourists. Yeah. The Thai Prime Minister has you know, recently tried to um, restart tourism into the country, especially from countries like China. So this is going to pro- prove a little bit of a challenge. The, the question really is, how are they going to step up security? You know, In, in Thailand, they have uh, reportedly one of the highest uh, rates of private gun ownership yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in this region. They do have rules and, and laws governing uh, gun ownership, but yeah. uh, apparently enforcement is not strict enough, as, is, as was in this case. The teenager had a handgun. I think we can just be thankful that he didn't have a more powerful weapon, yeah. uh, rifle or machine gun. And this very sad reminder, just days before, this, this shooting comes just days before the one-year anniversary uh, of that horrific attack when a former Thai police officer attacked the nursery and killed 24 children and, and 12 adults. Yeah. This was almost just today, a year ago. So, you know, it's definitely something that we hope the Thai government can get under control quickly, yeah. you know, before anything else happens. Yeah, I'm picking up quite a few things from what you said. I mean, for starters, it didn't surprise me that mental health was an issue when you consider the boy's age. That's definitely going to spark a whole other conversation, you know, with regard to video games. You know, does that promote violence? Are people thought to manage what they see in video games being one? I'm not saying that that was the cause. Um, mm. But we know that, you know, in Bangkok, 
called these shopping centres they have these like uh, metal detectors as you go in it can be a bit troublesome so it comes back to that question how on earth Thai police Thai security going to ensure that this uh, security is stepped up any odds that there might be a potential change to gun laws is it enough to push that needle I'm not sure. I mean, as I was sort of saying, I think gun laws, uh, the laws governing weapon ownership are very strict in Thailand. Restricted to Thai citizens. Yeah. Yeah. But then I guess the question is, how would you enforce? And you're right, you know, when I go into malls in Thailand, it's not uncommon to see the security guards standing outside. But, you know, unlike our security guards in Singapore, these guys are armed with large shotguns, for example, and sometimes automatic rifles as well. So I'm not sure if this just stepping up laws or stepping up security is actually going to change much given the the size of the country and challenges with enforcement. But I was thinking about what might potentially move the needle. And and, you know, in the US, when they were having spates of active shooter attacks in, in schools, in nightclubs, in places like that, they came up with a, with, with a sort of a protocol called run, hide, fight. You know, right. uh, yes, the, yes. To sort of advise people what to yeah. do in the case of an active shooter. And first they have thing, exercises away. on this as well. That's right, you know, in schools and stuff like that. Yeah. So first step, run away. Second step, hide if you can't run. And the third step, the final step, is if you have no other option, then try to fight you know, and take on the, the shooter. Mm. Uh, in Singapore, we have a modified version of that. Ours is called run, hide, tell. Yeah. So, you know, uh, run away, hide to make yourself safe and then tell the authorities. Yeah. And we have the SG Secure app in Singapore, which yes. allows people to make very, very quick reports if they see any sorts of incidents like this. And also for them to receive alerts and messages when, when situations are developing. And, you know, one of the complaints from or one of the feedback from people who were trapped in Zion Paragon uh, was that they're like, you know, we were getting our updates from X, you know, the yeah. former Twitter platform, social media and stuff like that. So maybe they thought some of these things, uh, it, it may not completely solve the issue, but it could definitely help. Mm, hopefully things do improve and of course we'll keep you up to date as we get more information regarding the incident okay Nicholas let's shift our attention to more familiar places like Malaysia for example and it looks like the haze is back they're blaming Indonesia for the haze this claim has been rebutted I mean is this really the right time to play the blame game does does Malaysia have a proper justification to put the blame of uh, the haze on Indonesia yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit of he said, she said. Yeah. Uh, and currently, I think most of the authorities in Malaysia are being slightly circumspect. They haven't pointed fingers directly, but they have said sources of the haze are from external, you know, outside of Malaysia. And they have sort of poo-pooed any sort of uh, comment or view that it could be fires within Malaysia, uh, which has not been spared, you know, the recent fires as being the cause of the haze. I don't know about you, you know, mm. I, I have had a lot of anecdotal reports from friends and I still does feel a little bit scratchy in the past few days, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and I, I think we're seeing that there is definitely concern that the haze might be making a comeback. Um, the Singapore Institute of International Affairs, we put out a haze outlook June this year. Okay. And we actually rated the risk of transboundary haze this year as red, which is the highest uh, rating for risk. And this is driven by a few different factors, you know, in terms of the weather. We are seeing El Nino and, and exactly. something over the Indian Ocean that yeah. is leading to hotter and drier conditions. Yeah. And this is lasting longer into the year as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're in October now and 
Normally, September is when we start to see the easing of these phenomena. So there is a high risk that we'll see these dry conditions uh, persisting and causing problems for us going forward. There is, of course, you know, the market conditions that, that push farmers to, to uh, be more aggressive in terms of clearing their land by burning. Mm. Uh, and and the price pressures have, of course, been driven by the, the sort of geopolitical events we've been seeing, right? Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war has pushed out the price of agricultural commodities and it's affected global prices of fertilizer and other commodities like vegetable oil as well. So, you know, there's, there's more activity going on in response to these market forces. But I think one thing we have to give credit for is that uh, the Indonesian government, the President Joko uh, Widodo, has been doing many, many good things to take action against uh, illegal and unsustainable behavior in the forestry and other land use sector, which governs a lot of these plantations. You know, there's been a permanent moratorium on granting new permit, uh, permits for businesses to clear forests and peatland. There's many, many audits of the palm oil sector. And they've, in fact, set a goal to uh, turn the entire forestry and other land use sector into a net carbon sink by 2030. Uh, And and this is a big part of their goals under the Paris Agreement as well. So, you know, I think the Indonesian government has been doing some really, really good work in September. Just last month, they launched their first carbon emissions trading market in Indonesia. But one of the key questions is, you know, President Jokowi is approaching the end of his second and final term. That's right. And we have to see how the next president will prioritize these issues going forward. Timely that you bring that up. Uh, and I guess this is a bit of an opinion uh, observation type question. The Transboundary Haze Pollution Act enacted almost 10 years ago uh, from 20, uh, in 2014. Is this perhaps a time to relook at this and factor in more things? Yeah, that's, again, a good point. And I think there's some encouraging moves uh, at the regional level. Mm. Uh, ASEAN member states recently reached the final agreement to establish a permanent permanent ASEAN Coordinating Centre for Transboundary Haze Pollution Control. It's a very long name. It's going to be in Indonesia, and it will facilitate faster and better information sharing among all the ASEAN member states. Uh, And they are in the midst of rolling out a new haze-free map for 2023 to 2030, along with a new investment framework to support haze prevention projects. So it's like a multi-pronged approach across a multilateral platform that is ASEAN. So, you know, fingers crossed it will build on, on some of the legislation and, and frameworks that were that, that you mentioned came out, you know, 10 years ago. But this year, is going, this year and actually next year, is going to be a, a key time of stress testing. The haze situation worsens this year and if there's a severe haze in 2024, we need to see how this positive tone of cooperation between ASEAN nations continues, whether it improves or whether it takes a step back. Okay. With, as we started talking about all this finger pointing and, and blame game. All right. Nicholas, it's just a final issue to look at, and that's the potential cabinet reshuffling in Malaysia. Uh, what are the odds that this could happen? Is, is, is this an urgent enough situation for Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim to, to reshuffle his cabinet? So it's definitely tricky. Uh, Prime Minister Anwar has made pains to say that the reshuffle isn't happening anytime soon. And by anytime soon, he's meant sort of yesterday, today. uh, And he's traveling uh, in a couple of days' time. There's some expectation that it will likely only happen after the Pelanggai by election, which is expected on October 7th. And But, you know, if we take a step back, I don't envy uh, Prime Minister Anwar. Obviously, there are, you know, key positions that need to be filled when it comes to issues of inflation and uh, managing the, the economy and, and trying to, um, you know, build back 
a stronger economic performance for uh, uh, the Anwar administration. But at the same time, as we've spoken about before, yeah. he's, 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 he faces a very tricky balancing act uh, within his coalition government, uh, the unity government, to, to make sure that all the different parties are appeased. There's been some talk about the recent uh, six state uh, elections and the sort of uh, results that came out from there, the need to try to win back more of the Indian vote, uh, especially the youth vote as well. Uh, and these could all factor into his calculations of when it's likely to happen. Mm. But some you know, analysts have said that there's an urgent need to get the right people, the, the qualified people into, especially the critical positions in the economic uh, realm to get the country back onto a stronger growth path, economically speaking. So you know, that, that's certainly something that uh, I hope is a priority for Prime Minister Anwar. But of course, he needs to balance all the different forces at play in his government as well. Slightly left field, uh, how much of this is playing in his head? The need for imaging, the need to show that he's serious about his reform agenda? Oh, uh, 100%. I think his his plans received some good response uh, early on. But there's been some question marks about the economic performance. Uh, and, uh, you know, some, some, of course, analysts say that that economic times are a global phenomenon, not particular, not peculiar to Malaysia. Uh, but as you say, he does need to be seen as, as pushing forward and prioritizing uh, improving the lives of Malaysians by ensuring that there are good you know, growth, economically speaking, overall, mm. that, that the country can get back onto a, a stable growth path, uh, which would be welcome news for all the countries, Malaysia's neighbours in, in this region as well. So, you know, I think it, it remains to be seen as he's keeping his cards close to his chest, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a reshuffle uh, coming uh, very shortly in the, in the near future. Alright, so I've been speaking with Nicholas Fang, Managing Director Black Dot and Director for Security and Global Affairs Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Thank you so for your time. Take care. Have a great Wednesday evening. Take it easy. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.